One thing I'm constantly amazed by is that every time the science proclaims the matter settled, it won't be too much longer after that that new evidence comes out to disprove the current narrative. Global warming gets dismissed because of some really cold years. So it turns into climate change. The vaccines are effective. <clears throat> yeah. Both of those turn out to be 100% wrong after the science had been settled. But Noah's flood? Oh yeah, that science has definitely been settled. Or has it? On today's episode, I have on Nate Richard. Nate comes with some serious cred here. He is a teacher by profession, so it's not like you have to take the word of a clown with a microphone. Nate does a great job of explaining how the flood occurred, as well as gives great evidence for the flood. Now just a quick side note here, if you have access to YouTube or Rumble, you may be better served to watch this episode there, because Nate uses a lot of pictures on this episode. Get ready to engage the science on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I want to take just a few moments here and just say thank you for listening. I can never tell you how much it means to me that you spend your time here with me. Now, on top of that, last year I received donations that helped me upgrade the audio, equipment, and software. This year I want to do the same thing for video. Now, if you want to help out and make a donation, you can do that by going to mormonrenegade.com and making a donation there. Also, check out the Mormon Renegade Supply Store at mormonrenegade.com and pick up some merch. Now, if you can't do any of those, I completely understand. It's not like it's been a banner year necessarily for our finances. So maybe just keep the podcast in your prayers. Finally, as I've started to do more video, there's a YouTube channel up for the podcast. But uh, just between you and me, yeah, I ain't going to be there very long because I have a feeling I'm going to get kicked off. So to stay one step ahead of that, I've made a channel on Rumble. So head on over to Rumble, look up the Mormon Renegade podcast channel there, and crush that like and subscribe button. Thank you. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade podcast. Well, Nate, it's good to have you back on, man. How's things been for you? Super good. Um, yeah, I've been listening to your show, and that sounds like you always have a fun time on here. I uh, try. I try. I mean, we deal with some pretty sacred subjects and some pretty important subjects, but I, I feel like if we can't have a good time doing this, we're probably not doing it right. So, yeah. yep, that's, yeah, no, it's been good. So, Everything good on your end? Yeah, wife and kids are happy as 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 they can be, and I'm happy as I can be, and that's good. Awesome. You know, when we started talking again a few weeks back about you coming back on the podcast, um, I was intrigued by this idea of being able to prove Noah's flood through science. I just... I, I and maybe it's just because I'm too rational or I'm too over analytical, but my thought is, is if 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 what we believe is true, we should see evidence of it, right? It yep. And not, and not no to take away, that's a problem. Yeah, and and not to take away from faith because faith is super important. And if you're relying on science to to get your testimony, um 
it's uh that's a problem but once you have that faith i i feel like you you should be looking for evidences right you should be looking for things yeah. that that bolster that a little bit so yeah, i was I super excited to now. do it yeah so yeah man j- jump on in okay we'll make this as conversational as you want it doesn't have to be any one way okay um, this is this is kind of a mesh of a couple different um different topics so there's noah's flood and um there's you know gosh there's fossils evolution um you know where all the water for the flood comes from which is not just rain because there's only you know the atmosphere is only about enough for one inch of rain to cover the whole earth um so we had to have some more water from somewhere else for the flood so um, Universal Models, what this is based on, and this is the book. It's uh, this first volume is the flood and this and where the flood water comes from, which is hydroplanet, saying that there's a lot more water under the earth than most people think. And the second volume has a lot to do with the fossils and how that impacts the age of the earth and stuff. So, yeah, and this this yeah. all ties right back in with the universal model. So at this point, I would encourage anybody who's listening who hasn't listened to the episode I did with Russ Barlow. Uh, I did two with Russ so far. Go back and well, I think three, maybe even maybe three. But anyway, go back and listen to those because that's going to give you the groundwork for what we're talking about today. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Nate. It's great. Um. Okay, let's see. So uh, anyway, um, when it when it comes to where the water come from for the flood, so like I said, there's about an inch worth in the atmosphere that could cover the world, but we're talking a worldwide flood that covers mountains. It says that right in the Bible, and we need to honor the Bible as our um, as the measuring rod for uh, theories and and research. Um. Now, there may have been some kind of a firmament. People talk about some kind of possible additional water in the sky in the past. I don't know. And Dean doesn't know. Dean Sessions wrote Universal Model. And Dean's focus, though, is just focusing on what we can prove, what we can look at today. So um, I think there's compelling evidence that the water came from um, the rain, but also it says the fountains of the deep broke open. And right. this uh, model gives a new view on what the fountains of the deep are in a really cool way. Okay. So, um, yeah. Um, I wanted to do like some introductory thoughts on how, let's see, um, how I had a really bad run in at BYU with trying to figure this out because <laughs> BYU, they're all teaching the wrong thing when it comes to evolution. You mean, uh, you mean uh, that BYU that, that has the majors program, the philosophies of men mingled with scripture? Is that the school you're talking about? Yeah, with a, you know, uh, a minor in compromise. <laughs> right. Okay. Just, just wanted yeah. to clear that up. You know, I'm, I have, I have a merchandise store on my website and I'm toying with the, uh, with the idea really hard of just printing up a shirt that says just BYU on the front. And then on the back, it says philosophies of men mingled with scripture department. And then uh, then run that way. Make sure you wrote something about the biology department on there. Right. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, no, we uh, I, we we should maybe uh, brainstorm on that a little bit. Oh yeah, I've thought a lot about that. Uh, <laughs> one one fun one idea I had was uh, keep uh, keep the keep the Y in BYU or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. No. Man. No. Absolutely. Around our house, we have a saying: every time the Cougars lose in football, an angel gets its wings. So. Losing football, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> when I was on my mission in the southern states, there we had a member's house, and and uh, he was just, you know, BYU was was the the, you know, the Lord's school, and and my companion said, well, it's not the Lord's school, it's it's just a school, and this member looks at him with wide eyes and says, blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. I do, I do love BYU. I was there for six years. And, uh, I, um, they've got a lot of good stuff going, but it's our job to, to be gadflies and, you know, to, to, uh, let them know when there's something that we're not happy about. So let, let me ask you this real quick before we dive in here, cause I'm interested. I don't think I've had too many people on that have spent that amount of time at BYU. Did you see a change in the time you were there or did all the change that we start seeing now? kind of happen after you left i was there from 2013 to 19 and uh oh so you were in the thick of it i was getting hit hard from the beginning yeah i was uh my professors would say you know um and this is you know god god used evolution isn't that wonderful and all the prophets were wrong you know my 50 pages of quotes of prophets who said that you know organic evolution is contrary to the fallen atonement and like yeah forget about all that you know um evolution is the only way because the academic journals say so and uh scriptures have nothing to do with temporal things so how do they get they, away with that nate i i've always been curious about that i never attended byu so i i don't know what 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 it looks like but if it's receiving money from salt lake right church headquarters how do they manage to pull that off without, I mean, I know Holland came down kind of hard on them a year or so ago, but other than that, there's not a lot that happens from Salt Lake where it's kind of like, Hey, get your, get yourself in line. Yeah. I've, uh, I've been wondering that same thing. It's uh, pretty tragic because the, it's really obvious that tons of people lose their faith in Christianity when they, when they believe in evolution right um i had uh it was an astronomy class and you know it's a dark room and so i i make my joke that i had this long conversation in a dark smoke-filled room uh (laughs) with this professor and she was trying to get me into evolution and isn't it just just let it be like it's so cool and just allow god to do that and like what do you mean allow God to do that? Like the whole purpose that is of evolution, a weird thing to say, right? Let God do that. It's like the whole point of evolution theory is to explain nature without God. That's right. The whole point. Yeah. Right. From I the know. beginning, Darwin was clear on that. And uh, yeah. And then the flood, you know, in the church, we've seen, you know, everybody loves Hugh Nibley. Hugh Nibley got on the bandwagon of, you know, Hey, yeah, it must have been a local flood that just Noah, you know, saw. And uh, 
you know, maybe it wasn't a worldwide flood. But the whole point of the flood, you know, according to the Bible, was it covered all the mountains. The waters prevailed, you know, 15 cubits, which probably means it was 15 cubits above the mountains. Um, and, you know, it says all flesh on the earth died. So, I mean, anyway, and uh, it's, you know, it's obviously the, you know, everybody around the world has their legend of, of major flooding. And the more scientists are honest, the more they'll admit it. Um, so 200 years ago, before James Hutton started talking about, you know, evolution, uh, of course, Darwin, Lyle, all those guys, but James Hutton is the guy who we get our magma earth from. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, people believed the earth was made in water, like the Bible says, and that that makes it a lot easier to comprehend the earth being flooded. Um, and you look around at all the other planets and moons, and they're basically these big balls of ice and uh, water. And uh, I don't know how far we'll get with our discussion tonight because there's so much information. I mean, these, yeah, we're, we're, um, anyway. So let's see what else we got here. Let's see if I can, this works. Um, President Nelson, it's encouraging that he doesn't buy into evolution. He says, man has always been man. That's just the way genetic works. And then you have to ask the question, well, where did man come from? And that's where uh, the secular world, you know, fails. Because man came from God. So a, a real understanding of the, um, of science, you know, when you understand that there's no proof for evolution of species you you have to turn to god whether you call god you know jesus or whoever you call him like there has to be a god some way that i explain to you know every now and then i'll i'll get to have a private conversation with a student or or something where i'll make a suggestion that hey you know um just try to think of it as you know, what if we built a spaceship and we, you know, had some really great technology to where we we didn't age and we knew how to build really cool stuff and we went over and colonized planets. You know, what's what's that's not even a stretch anymore to believe that. Right. So it's like, hey, God's basically a colonizer and he he brings seeds, he brings animals, he brings people, starts another colony, you know. So what the the one thing I'd say is that term colonizing is is a pretty hot button term, right? I mean, if you look at things like the 1619 project, the word colonist isn't a good a good term, right? And so I wonder if sometimes if if some of this isn't a a political pushback, right? I mean, if you say God's a colonizer and the left tends to to think of colonizers as slave owning rich guys that 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 i could see where where they would get upset at that i'm i'm not saying that they're right in that assumption but i guess i can kind of see it a little bit that is interesting yeah hopefully a a benevolent colonizer well and, yeah yeah, yeah not, I, yeah I don't think there's anything wrong with colonization right i i think that's how 
how humanity spreads both through the eternities and on earth right and uh, i don't think colonizing necessarily has to be a an oppressive thing nor do i think it's always been an oppressive thing right i think i think we talk about a mixing of cultures when you're talking about it in in terms of of this sphere of existence yeah um let me uh Let's see if I can do a couple of things here. So, I mean, flood in particular, um, that's a little bit later in this. Um, I wonder if I should jump right to it or do some of the background. That's stuff. that's completely up to you, Big Dog. I, I am fine. Like I told you earlier in the, in the text, we have all the time in the world. All the time you want to spend here, we have it. All right. Well, I guess if you can hold your uh, buckle your seatbelts, we'll take a little bit of a um, the there's a whole couple hundred page chapter with flood evidences. Um, I feel like this all ties in, so I I'll hit on a couple things and give you guys the Reader's Digest version. The cool thing about Universal Model is it's you know it's textbook style and it's got um, tons of quotes in there from academic journals. Um, it's pretty far as textbooks go, it's pretty easy to read. Um, like me teaching this, I'm not an expert at this. I've been working with Dean and, and studying and teaching this for a couple of years now, but, um, it's, it's all kind of right there and it's pretty straightforward. So this is, um, when, when we talk about flood, we talk about a young earth because the Bible says the flood was 4,500 years ago. Right. So, um, uh, which means there's no time for evolution. You know, if evolution's possible, it's going to take millions of years, right? Well, yeah that that that's the 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 secret ingredient or the key ingredient in all of evolution, right? Time. I I had a good friend who told me this once that the the key to understanding evolution is that somehow the elapsing of millions of years are magical, so it can turn a, a orange into a coke can exactly yeah when you're talking millions of years you're talking fairy tale um because nobody's seen it nobody's done it you know if you say well we just need to wait a million years it's like okay start waiting you know right because nobody's done that before so if you want to like theorize and tell stories that's one thing but if you want to do science you know we need to actually prove things um yeah so let me ask you this while we're on the subject what is your opinion of adaptation then do you believe that adaptation happens or is it too closely related to evolution adaptation is an obvious reality yeah yep it's just we've never seen one species cross into another Right. A great example I like to use is um, the horse and the donkey. You breed them, you make the mule. They can't uh, reproduce anymore because you've crossed a line there. Right. So the mule is infertile. So let me ask you this, because people will say, oh, well, you know, we can prove through genetics that we're really closely related to to apes. Do we share more genetic code with apes than other animals? Um, I don't know, but basically if we're similar to apes in our genetic code, you know, it's, I, 
I guess it was Russ pointed out. It's like a doghouse is similar to a house is similar to a, you know, skyscraper. Mm -hmm. They're all houses, but right. Yeah. Okay. Same engineer, you know, right. Different, different models. And the whole importance of it is that humans are, you know, we're the vastly more intelligent creation. We're not of the animal kingdom. We're of the basically God kingdom. You know? Right. So when you try to blur that, uh, that's when morals get involved. That's why Satan loves science and um, and evolution, because he can then say, well, you know, you're an animal. So it's not a big deal if you, you know, go do and act like an animal. So, right. Um, we've been breeding dogs for, you know, thousands of years and we still haven't made a non dog. Um, I don't know. Version. I think yeah. a golden, I, I think, a, a a golden doodle is pretty close to a non dog. Yeah, there's definitely. I'm just, I'm just saying. There's, there's a few dog breeds. I, I have a rough time calling a dog, but yeah, we'll, we'll go with your argument, Nate. Okay. Um, there's also reversion, which is that if you leave dogs or or whatever you've artificially bred alone to itself in nature, they'll go back to their original stock, so to say. They'll un unspecialize themselves and go back to the natural stock. Um. So, yeah, we have this tree of life where the – see if I can make my mouse into a highlighter. There we go. So this outer ring has names because those are all the species we know. But the inner rings that are supposed to connect them into a common ancestor, they don't have names because they haven't been discovered because they probably don't exist. Dude, that's nuts. So, like, the majority of species that we say have evolved into another species, we don't have scientific proof for. Yeah. Holy yeah. cow. Missing the common ancestors. And that's what everybody is out pulling their hair trying to do is find the common ancestors. And they lie about it. They, you know, they make forgeries. Um, I think I have an example. So, if you have... Um, a bunch of people. Here's here's some ape people for you, right? Right. Some of the half monkey, half humans. So when they found these bones, they didn't have hair on them. They didn't have a skin color. So this is all a makeup job, you know? Right. Uh, there's no way for them to know that either. No. Another thing is when you're dealing with evolution, the scientists will admit that it's not like, oh, really deep we've got the monkey more shallow we've got the half monkey and then towards the surface we have the bones of the human it they want you to believe that there's this nice gradual things are getting more and more complex in the fossil record but that's not reality right. um the reality is that most fossils are toward the surface of the earth in the top foot you find the fossils when you're excavating to build something or um within the top 70 feet um uh, such as the Bingham Canyon mine, you know, it's a mile deep. The only place they found fossils is in the very top 70 feet. Why would fossils only be towards the surface? It's because mm. it was a recent event and it was a one-time event. Mm. Um, and that event was the flood. This is the thing about fossils and the flood. F 
Fossils aren't being made right now. Fossils are a special thing. It's a bone that's turned into a rock. But if you go outside right now, you're not going to find any half fossils that are in the process of transitioning from bone into rock because the conditions for it aren't happening. So fossils, really, a true understanding of fossils is a evidence of the flood. The flood okay. made the fossils because normally when something dies, it decays, it gets scavenged, and it's not turning into a rock. What you need to turn it into a rock is a tremendous amount of pressure and hot water that's going to drive minerals into that bone to make it a rock. And that just doesn't happen every day. So the cool thing about Universal Model is Dean's done some experiments where he's taken the height of about five miles is about how tall our tallest mountains are. And how much water pressure would that be? be about 13,000 PSI. So that's our magical ingredient for pressure. And so he gets his autoclave and, and uh, this uh, water and um, plays with the pressure to get this pressure. And he has taken pieces of wood and turned them into rocks. In other words, petrified wood. Wow. So he's found... You know, and it's about 750 degrees um, Celsius is the heat you need. And you could ask, where did the heat come with the floodwaters? That's from the Earth's plates rubbing together. Right. Friction heating. Um, so I have some pictures of it. We'll maybe get to, but um, fossils don't just happen every day. Um, you need a very specific recipe to make fossils. So uh, let's, hmm. let's see here. Um, you also have fossils that look a lot like uh, the same. So here we have fossils of you know crawfish, wasp, ferns, and they all look just like their modern day counterparts. But if these are millions of year old fossils, which they claim the fossils are that old, these should have evolved by now. Um because they say humans evolved in just 2,000 generations. So uh, why haven't these guys evolved? Also, there's bacteria 45,000 generations later. It hasn't evolved. It's still bacteria. So, And that's been one of the things about the theory of evolution that's always kind of <clears throat> sat with me wrong, right? We're two things. One is, is that we should be able – we should expect to see – even before our eyes, certain amounts of evolution taking place, and we just don't see it. If evolution is for real, then for the most part, it, it seems like it stopped, right? I mean, certainly people can adapt and change based on their environment, and so can animals. And you can do things like selective breeding and that sort of thing with animals, but but we don't see that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I heard a really funny uh, this comedian is talking about evolution. He's like, so if the monkeys evolved into humans, why do we still have monkeys? Are those just like the retarded monkeys? That <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, so. Nate, I have met a couple of people that's really <laughs> challenged me on my beliefs because I'm like, yeah, you might just be a generation away from dragging <laughs> your knuckles. I mean, 
I'm not going to lie, but uh, I'm just playing. Anyway, yeah, no, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Um, so another thing is they're always finding these, you know, half monkey, half human skeletons, right? But actually, they're usually just pygmy skeletons or skeletons of monkeys. Um, they do all kinds of shenanigans. They'll, you know, they'll find a, a there was this one case where it was the a tooth of a pig. And they said that was the missing link. <laughs> there was this other case where there was the I don't know I don't think I have the slide here oh, yeah, I do um, that was the tooth of the pig was uh, the Nebraska man the there was the Piltdown man which was the jawbone of an orangutan with fragments of a modern human skull you know and these things are stuck in your textbooks for decades until they finally get exposed you know Hilton man broken teeth filed down to fool people and the famous Lucy was discovered two weeks before he ran out of grant money to find the missing link for evolution. That research was on an errand to figure that out. And thankfully he did right before his time was up. That's crazy that it was just a couple of weeks before the money ran out. I'm shocked. Um, and with Lucy um, and these pygmies, um, we've found bones that are the same, basically the same as Lucy. And they're in this cave, but they're bones, not fossils, which means they're fresh. And um, it's close to this pygmy village. And it's like, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things um, that are just showing more and more fraudulent stuff here. Um, obviously, you know, there was a time when Harold B. Lee was asked about Neanderthals. He said, have you forgotten the, the scripture? And he quoted Moses 3, 7. I, Lord, formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, the first flesh upon the earth, the first man also. Kind of like the Lord repeated himself like three times in that verse just to make sure we'd get it. Um, anyway, Bruce McConkie was really good at throwing down against evolution. So, read him. Um, yeah, Book of Alma, Book of Second Nephi. Man in the beginning was created in the image of God. And, you know, they must have remained forever um, in the state in which they were created as they would have had no children. These are the conditions that existed before the fall. And it's crazy the mental gymnastics people will do to, to you know, try and be pro-God and Adam and yet pro, you know, uh evolution they'll they'll come up with all kinds of crazy stuff and i don't think we need to go there um and i have a testimony that we don't need to go there what do you think no i i think you're right and i think there's a danger in going in there right i think this idea that you know if man evolved from monkeys you you take away you take away the 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 thing that makes us unique right and you you all of a sudden man isn't so much a sentient thinking being who has the gift of consciousness and this idea of um, being able to connect with his creator. If you can take those underpinnings out of who man believes they are, then man is just another animal within the animal kingdom. And as such, your behavior can reflect that somewhat. Somewhat. I, I'm, I make the connection that once we went with evolution, we started to devalue life. Mm 
And I think that 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 opens up the doors to some pretty nasty things, right? I think the the stuff we saw come out of certainly the Third Reich in Germany during World War II. I think the the way we look at people now, <clears throat> abortion, euthanasia, all those things, I think, are the natural outgrowths of this idea that, you know what, man's just another animal within the animal kingdom. Because if we're not different, then really, is there any more significance to putting down a uh, unwanted human than there is in putting down an unwanted dog? I think there's all sorts of nasty nastiness that goes along with this. Yeah. Um, And it it really opens the doors to, you know, um, taking the whole Bible and just setting it on the shelf because we're past that, you know? Right. Um, You know, and it, and it makes it so that we question whether the flood was real and whether the second coming of Christ is real and whether, salvation is real so it really puts a javelin in the heart of religion um you could definitely make a case that it's it's the devil's religion in a way oh absolutely um so james hutton um second peter three says in the last days people say where is the promise of his coming since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So this is called uniform theory, which says that there's no catastrophes allowed. The flood, though, was a big catastrophe, and it changed everything. And why would God use a big catastrophe? It's because he wanted there to be no mistake that he was involved. But when people downplay the reality of that event, you know, then they can downplay the reality of God's involvement with our lives. So um, the fact of the flood being worldwide and not just a little, you know, carnival ride that Noah went on, it's got big implications. Um, just going to skip some of this. Um, so the flood, one of the big ideas is that the Grand Canyon was deposited by the flood. Um, so with the flood, we've got all kinds of pipes all around the earth that are shooting out massive amounts of sand and mud and water and, you know, maybe some lava and that they, that this grand Canyon was laid down. The layers were laid down and fairly rapidly. And then the whole Canyon it's on a fault line. Mm-hmm. And so the whole Canyon split in an earthquake. Now, part of the reason we can make this claim is because, the Grand Canyon is missing a bunch of things that should be there if if this layer was laid down and then a million years passed. Don't you think some vegetation would grow and some animals would show up? Um, but, you know, or maybe some coal would form uh, or, you know. So we're missing all this stuff in the Grand Canyon. Okay. Um the National Park Service website says, quote, no one has ever found a fossilized reptile skeleton or bone within the Grand Canyon. Fossil footprints were left by more than 20 species of reptiles and amphibians, but no teeth or bones. Um, basically, you're not finding any real fossils in the Grand Canyon. And 
that would mean that it wasn't just something that was built slowly layer by layer. Okay. Okay. Um, you also have a few other things. One side of the canyon is, uh, gosh, what was the number? Like a thousand feet higher than the other side. Um, big evidence of, uh, of that, that there was an earthquake involved. Standard theory is that it was a river that carved this out. Um, but there's a lot of problems with that. Um, again, the missing layers, missing fossils, missing um, sediments, missing topsoils between the layers is a big problem. Um, so you're coming to these conclusions not based off of anything like radiocarbon dating, but more like, okay, if, if there's a pattern that seems to be at play here, which which some of these scientists who favor evolution have kind of pinned their their uh, their whole theory on which is you can go through these layers these different strata and, and find you should expect to find these kind of animal fossils within this strata and then a million la years later you should find the, this kind of plant life within this strata and in the grand canyon you don't see that at all am i understanding correct nate yeah that's right okay um yeah around the world there's only um a small bit of soil that's topsoil it, it, you don't find um that same kind of soil in between the different layers which there should be you know right. um if those layers were set down a long time away from each other right and you can actually do calculations based on how fast that topsoil is building with the organic material on the surface and you can trace it back to it starting around 4,500 years ago. Right. Which is flood time. Gotcha. So the sediment that we're walking around on today, it's all flood sediment. Um, as far as mountains go, a lot of the mountains were made in the creation. We have a spiritual uh, teachings on that in the church. Okay. Um, let, let, let me stop you there real quick because there's something I need clarification on. You said all the soil we walk around today that we walk around on today is, is flood soils. Yeah. So flood soils would mean soils that were um, basically shot up from under the earth through um, big conduits or fountains at the time of the flood. So and, in, uh, how, how do we know that that's where these soils came from? Um, well, some um we'll get into more of that okay um when we look at the different fountains okay uh, and we look at the nature of the worldwide the worldwide nature of the flood so you've got things like granite that were probably before the flood um like the you know grand tetons of idaho those are granite um they have no fossils in them granite typically has you know no fossils mm -hmm. in it and so that was in the creation, there wasn't any animals at the very beginning of the creation, right? Right. So you've got some of these things that were made um, at the creation, but uh, everything was kind of mixed up at the flood. That's okay. There's, there's kind of two things that were going on at the flood. Things were getting mixed up and a lot of stuff was getting sprouted out from underneath the ground. And um, we'll look at, you know, different locations where you know like white sands monument just all this white sand in the middle of nowhere where it's all surrounded by you know different colors of soil 
and we try to think of where that white sand come from you know was it from a, a mountain of the similar color that eroded from there's no mountain of similar color around or did a river maybe carry it to that location and there's no river around so the the answer is that it came from underneath the earth so we find time after time places where there's this discolored soil deposit that had to have come from beneath the earth so and let me ask you this when when let's say because we've you know mankind has done a ton of stuff right mining fracking directional drilling all those other things in those processes have we been able to pull out soils that would match the kind of soils we walk around on today so topsoil worldwide is only in the top layer basically and there's not i mean we have like coal um so have you ever okay. you've probably driven in utah to price where is that big right big, long, stark uh coal right there right um so when these layers are getting put down they're um you know they're uh there's sweeping waters coming in and turn making that coal really rather quickly and then another layer gets deposited on top of that from continued uh continued stuff coming up from under the ground um and we can make coal in a laboratory in you know a matter of hours um so that's another thing that's that's in the text is you know synthetic coal that resembles natural coal um that's indistinguishable from natural coal okay so. i'm and, and I, i'm not trying to to be argumentative i'm just trying to understand here nate so my mm -hmm. but my thought is is that if you said that a lot of the topsoil that that we walk around on today comes from beneath the earth through those those um, well fountains no, that saying, were forced forth. I'm right? saying the topsoil that we're walking around on has been building up since the flood, forty five hundred years. Okay, like that top like foot or so of soil that's okay. different than the other soil. Right, that's been building up over the past 4,500 years since the flood. And that okay. the stuff underneath that was deposited at the time of the flood and that we haven't had any major event okay. since now the flood I see. to make, you know, another deposit or another mix up. Okay. All right. That, that yeah, makes I sense. I, I thought you were saying that all the soil we walk around today that we walk around on today were products of what was shot out of those, those fountains of the deep, so to speak. And my, my thought was, well, if that's the case, then we should be able to drill down and find similar soils. But if, if, if what you're saying is that's accumulated after the flood, <clears throat> that topsoil accumulated after the flood, then that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Basically the, um, after you go down past the, the topsoil, you have something completely different. Okay. And it's just one of the evidences that, you know, if you calculate how long it takes to build up that topsoil for organic material every year, um, you can measure that to be that, that distinct type of stuff that's building up on the top has been doing that for 4,500 years. And before that, 
it's something completely different. Right. Which indicates that the floodwaters came through and, and you know, destroyed everything. Um, and that we've been building again since the flood. Okay. All right. Nope. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I might have a picture somewhere, but, um, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Let me go and try to find, um, typical, you know, typical, uh, theory on fossilizations that something will die. More and more scientists are admitting that flooding is, uh, involved with dinosaur extinction. Um, sometimes they'll only give it like a minor flood. And they'll say it kind of sat there in the water for a while, was buried, and then eventually turned into, you know, magically turned from a bone into a rock. But in reality, um, this doesn't happen. Bones just don't turn into rocks. And we talked about that a little bit. Um, Earth's surface does not contribute silica saturation much above six parts per million in typical groundwater. At such a low concentration, only microscopic quartz crystals could form, which is not enough to even cement uh grains together hmm. so um the in the we're just not seeing the proper amount of pressure and um silica to to be doing this in everyday natural things gotcha um we also find soft tissue um like dinosaur eggs jellyfish fossils feather fossils according to darwin fossils take a really long time to make and so soft things can't be preserved. But if you had a catastrophic event, it was a big event, then you can make stuff like this. You can preserve, you know, even you've got footprints, fossilized footprints. Um, now, normally, if we walk through the mud, you're going to get some rain or something that's going to wash our footprints away. But right. if there was a catastrophic event that pulled in just the right amount of, of water, heat and pressure you can take these soft things and convert them quickly into a rock. Okay. Yeah. So, um, another interesting thing about that is the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980. They thought, Oh, this is a really great case study. We're going to, you know, see the beginnings of, of fossils being made because a the big theory is that mud from volcanoes is what traps animals and plants and fossilizes them right but the trees from mount st helens those are all decaying and give it a few years there won't even be any trees left over that were trapped in that mud because they're all decaying so if we say wait a million years we can't wait a million years because everything will be gone okay so so it makes no sense that um these fossils that are of well, um, vegetation would be around because they would have they would have decayed before the process of fossilization would have taken place unless it was a cataclysmic event that had a lot of heat behind it as well. Yeah, exactly. And the picture yeah. is actually right here. Um, so there's two scenarios. We can compare a scenario where we don't have petrified wood like Mount St. Helens eruption. And where we do, like the Yellowstone Standing Petrified Forest. So mm -hmm. Mount St. Helens eruption, 1980, these things are already decaying away. They're not, there's pretty quick, there's not going to be anything left. So forget about fossilizing those because they're history. But why do we have petrified trees 
um, in other places, it's because those were made during the flood. That okay. is where we did have that, you know, 13,000 PSI, that 750 degrees Celsius, you know, underwater to where that could happen. Also underneath the ground, you've got mineralizers, these pipes that are shooting out the minerals necessary to uh, turn these wood and, and bones into rocks. Okay. So let me ask you this. Have we, have we found any of those tubes that, that shot that water out during the flood? Absolutely. Um, I have some of that later. Let's see. Let me fast track to. Sorry, I'm making you. Jump no, it's good. I, um, been through this like a billion times so i actually know where it is but i understand watching this can give somebody a seizure that's all right if, if you're not getting a seizure i haven't done my job so okay um you've got things like this um these rock pipes there's actually some compelling evidence that these are remnants of of fountains I'll show you a few pictures and then I'll explain. Okay. So we've got Monument Valley, Arizona. Um, here's uh, um, pedestal formations. Um, and in some of these, you can see a little opening, a concave little opening right. in the top of the of the pillar formation, where it it does almost look like a pipe itself, right there. Um, here's some more, this one, it's, it's like a pipe cracked in half. You can see the concave interior there. Um, and even big things, um, these could be, uh, at the Badlands mud fountain. Um, so again, I'm going to show you a few pictures and then we'll go back and, and give a little more of the why here's, um, these plastic dikes. They um, can be when um, material is coming up and out. Not okay. just lava, though. Um, if it was lava, the surrounding walls would have been uh, most likely more melted as well. Um, in in some cases, but not all. Let me show a few more of these. Um, let's see here. Yeah, Capitol Reef. Um there's the Monument Valley, Arizona itself could be one big hydro fountain pipe remnant. Um, there's uh, there's a couple that are you know in the ocean where you'll see these little island circle. Um, I don't think I put a picture of it on here. Um, and some deep caves that are that are cylindrical caves, right? Um, where you know you could have that as a hydro fountain as well. Gotcha. Uh, and this is the, yeah, sorry. No, you're good. I, I'm just going to ask another question here. What lends, what, what lends itself to this idea that those formations you showed us were pipes? Are they hollow on the inside? Um, what, what, what lends itself to that credence other than their shape? Uh, let me talk about a few things on that. So, um, basically for these pillars, uh, one thing is that they're a different color than their surrounding sediment. 
Right. So this one you can see is kind of a white color when the surrounding soils and rocks are like red. So why is this white? It's because it came from underground and what's underground is actually a lot of microbes. When we understand that underneath the earth is a lot more water than most uh, of us have, have thought, we understand that there is the possibility and it's not so shocking what they're finding that there's all these microbes down there and the microbes interacting with things um different species exist at different temperatures and different colors are created based on which species of microbes are involved so here you've got this white pillar and so what happens is there's an underwater eruption um what what we suggest triggered the flood of noah was a comet that's going nearby the earth which throws off the balance of the gravity force pushing in on us and a centripetal force, which is going outward from our spinning. And that made the continents basically crack and buckle and go underneath the water, kind of like a baptism of the continents. Anyway, with all this cracking, this is where you've got, um, obviously, you know, the plate boundaries, um, the ring of fire, you know, um, but you've got these, uh, pipes where the stuff is shot out and because of what's getting shot out is at a higher temperature and pressure it's going to solidify while surrounding stuff can erode more easily and what's left over is this pipe that's sticking out and okay. you see that in a lot of different places now have um, we been able to to spot like the rest of the pipe that's under the ground i i don't know i was actually thinking about that today I don't know if people are like so scared of, of ruining this cool thing that they don't want to dig around it. Um, well, there's, there's like uh, GPR and stuff, right? You don't need to dig. Okay. So I, I was just know. curious if, 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 you know, those, cause if those formations continue subsurface, I think it's a, it's, it's a dead giveaway. Right. Well, we definitely know about, you know, big old salt plugs, right. That just mm -hmm. go on forever and ever. That are these big old columns of, of salt formations. Right. Um, again, back at the Kennecott mine, we've got um, the ore bodies that we're digging out. They're all in vertical formations. Okay. Hmm. Um, I might have a picture of that. You see, uh, let's see, Kennecott mine, where are we? Well, I don't think I'm going to find it right now, but. You're an honest guy. I can take your word for it. No, the ore bodies are, are in uh, vertical deposits. And so it's like, here's this deposit, and over here is this deposit, and um, there are these vertical uh, things to where um, those were created in the flood too. Yeah. Okay. And um, so... I want to go back to something else you said. I, it brought up another question. So you think that the flood happened because... I shouldn't say because, but maybe God caused a comet to come by and it threw off kind of the spin and the centrifugal force. And that caused those fountains of the deep to kind of give way. Is that right? Yeah. And one of the scriptural evidences for that is that it says that um, in the last days, it'll be like the days of Noah. Right. Right. So what do we know about the last days? You read the book of Revelation, it's pretty obvious that there's some kind of 
you know, comment or something, right? Right. Involved. So, so I personally think that's a good connection to where we can say, yeah, the days of Noah probably involved that too. Sure. Let me let me ask you this question. <clears throat> we know that we can model what the sky looked like thousands of years ago because the for the most part everything keeps its its orbit pretty good right that's that's why we can can predict things like eclipses and when comets pass and that sort of thing is this a comet that we can model going backwards and say oh it was that comet that came too close or is this a stray object that kind of flies through the solar system um if, if I recall, I think they do make a theory for which specific comet it is. Okay. In the text, but I don't remember. No, no, that's good. I was just curious if if that was something that had been modeled. If if yeah. but it sounds like that work's been done, and that's the, you said that can all be found in the uni universal model textbook. Yep. And okay. All these, all these pictures I'm showing, all of this, all these ideas, like ninety five percent of these ideas. Mm -hmm. um our our universal model okay um dean has a little diagram of of some of the flood mechanics as far as the um comet stuff goes show you a picture of that so the idea is you know you've got the two forces in balance of gravity and centrifugal force and then a comet nearby um throws off the spin just enough to where the gravity force is stronger which right. makes so the continents submerge. Now you could say, what do you mean the continents submerge? You know, because under the crust, you know, in other words, under the continents is, is what? Well, mainstream idea is that it's, it's some kind of plastic magma. Um, and we'd all get roasted, but this wasn't a roasting. This was a bath. Um, this was a baptism. Um, because scientists agree that the continents are floating on something, in other words, magma, and that the ocean crust, you know, it's a lot thinner, but it's also floating on uh, um, magma. But right. we suggest that they're floating on more of a water and rock and ice, um, that okay. instead of 99% of water being in the oceans, you flip that on its head, you've got 1% of water in the ocean and all the rest, not all the rest, but the majority of water being underneath the crust. Okay. And scientists are saying already, um, they're like, hey, you know, just 400 kilometers down, we probably have enough water to refill the oceans hundreds of times. Um, yeah. So they're admitting a lot of this. Now, to get some context, the our crust on the continents is, you know, 36 kilometers, and our crust over the on the ocean floor is, um, so we've got about two and a half miles of ocean, and then you've got um, six kilometers of ocean floor. Right. So, even in that just first 400, I believe it was 400 kilometers, you've got just this epic amount of water. So when the Bible says that the fountains of the deep all broke open at the flood of Noah, it's like this one little sentence, you know, but it's like a huge deal when it comes to how the flood happened. Yeah. 
So back one other question. You said that the continents submerged. It's my understanding that before Noah's flood, it was just one continent, right? Right. There's a lot of evidence that um, in the Earth's history, the continents were one continent. And, uh, you know, and then at the time of the flood, when they, uh, when this uh, comet passes, um, the the buckling, the the crust going down in under the water, it also snaps it, snaps oh. the continents. And um, I like to make a couple of gospel analogies. You know, you've got the seven continents. You've got you know it's uh, you know the seven wounds of the atonement. You've got the seven thousand years. Um, you've got the gathering of Israel, which is about bringing the Lord's people back together and back into a righteous state of existence. And we've got prophecies that the continents will come back together too. Okay. No, that makes sense. Anyway, um, I like to think of it as the, you know, the continents got baptized, not just by sprinkling of rain, but by immersion. So, right. Right. Um, no, you can see the symbolism there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and we also have in latter Saint, Latter-day Saint theology, we've got the earth's going to die and it's going to be resurrected. And, you know, obviously the earth was created or born. And uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff that we have for doctrine that, that makes it so that if the earth wasn't baptized, you know, it's like, that would be, you know, it, it's easy to believe that the whole entire earth was baptized because of our theology about the nature of the living earth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So now the heat that you were talking about that it takes to create fossilization, is that just, is the thought that that, that water coming out was superheated? Because we know that, that there there are places, you know, where water comes out of the earth at an extremely hot temperature, right? right? I mean, that's where we get things like, you know, hot springs and that sort of stuff. Is that kind of what the illusion is there that would, that it would take heat? And is that, is that the source of that heat that it's heated water from under the ground? So there's a couple things going on there. Um, for starters. Yeah. You've got geysers today that you don't want to touch because it's really hot. And you've got, you know, these natural hot springs. The source of all that heat has to be from somewhere. And the answer that um, that modern science has is that it's from a giant ocean of magma that comes up to visit the surface every now and then when right. it wants to. But the answer um, that, um, that we propose is that there's frictional heating sufficient uh, of of plates of rocks rubbing together okay that a lot of this stuff is by fault lines okay and that you know we have earthquakes that um that generate 50,000 degrees celsius heat wow and all you need to melt rock is you know 12,000 degrees right so an earthquake you know billions of tons of rock having a having a fight like it's a no-brainer that that can create melted rock in other words lava 
So not only lava, but heat for um, as a necessary part of the recipe for these fossils. Gotcha. Um, let's let's actually talk a little bit about. Um, so we make a really big claim that you know with the the reason that people think that there's magma is this massive you know oceans of continuous magma in the earth is because you know they saw lava coming out of a volcano and they say oh well i guess that's what's down there lava however local friction can create that lava right uh, i want to see if i can show you a picture of that yes so this diagram here these are a couple drawings but we'll get into a couple pictures as well um where you've got two big old slabs of earth's rock sliding and when they do you bet that's enough uh temperature to liquefy that rock huh. also you've got all kinds of aquifers going on to where when you have this heat it's gonna vaporize the water and um, some of the magma is getting vaporized mostly the water um, and of course when you vaporize something it expands 1700 times so that's going to be what helps it shoot up to the surface okay um, we have evidence of frictional welding where you can um, rub two metals together in a fraction of a second and weld them. You've got lava flows along fault lines. Um, lots of evidences for local creation of um, of lava. Because this is the thing. When you have, you know, this water earth, this water planet, it's it's a piece of cake to to consider a flood covering the whole earth. But if you've got a planet that's mostly lava, you try to think of it being covered in water, and it's like, I don't think so. You know, okay. the water earth isn't like the the most important thing ever. Like, let's say, let's say this is this model is wrong, and that there really is a continuous, you know, magma underneath the crust of the earth it wouldn't you know i wouldn't lose my testimony and and say the flood never happened and and evolution's true and all this but we have to realize the connection that modern science makes with their magma earth and with their agendas if you've got a magma earth for one you probably can't have a flood based on our current understanding of how things work for two if you've got a magma earth you've got radiometric dating and you can have your four and a half billion year old earth because you're measuring things based on when they were supposedly melted and then calculating how old the earth is. But if the earth was not formed as a big molten fireball, as is depicted in, in certain religious locations that we know of, <laughs> if that's not really a thing, um you know right kind of sad it's sad to see that um <laughs> did that drive you nuts the first time you saw it oh my gosh 
I'll yeah. bet you it just it, it, I bet you you just squirmed a little bit, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, you know, the book of Genesis says the world was was made out of water. You know, the spirit of God moved over the face of the waters and and then the continents are are what happens next. Um, there's a couple of different theories on that how that could happen. One of them is uh, precipitation. If you have just the right, you know, you can either a chemical change or a pressure change, um, and you can get a solid to precipitate out of a liquid. So what was in this primordial, you know, water soup that, you know, maybe could have uh, had some solids precipitate out of it? I know the Egyptians talk about the beginning being water, and then the continents rise up out of the water. Right. Um, so uh, the water creation of the earth is actually a really big deal. Um, and uh, one of the cool things is when you're in zero gravity, like they uh, on the, in the space station, they'll spray out some water from their canisters and it'll form this little orb. Right. If you, if you haven't seen that, you know, go watch some videos on YouTube. Of it. It's, it's just really breathtaking, especially. I did, when you... I did see a, a a YouTube video on that, and every time water comes out, it doesn't like split apart. It it naturally wants to kind of just um, adhere together, and it forms this this the sphere. I don't know how else to describe yeah. it. It's just a ball. Yeah, I got a picture at the beginning of this somewhere, but I get lost in all these pictures. I think it's at the beginning. Um, and I'm going to explain some common arguments against that. Okay. It's at the beginning. Yeah, here it is. So yeah. we'll make this sphere. So this is zero gravity. What it's not, however, is zero air, because obviously that astronaut is breathing air. Right. So now let's take it outside of the spaceship and, you know, the space station. And what's going to happen then? Well, when there's no air... Okay, let's try it on Earth first. You take a container, a vacuum container, and you suck all the air out. What does water do? It'll actually, it's such a low pressure that it will start to boil. Okay, mm. so now you take that boiling water and it's at a room temperature. Now you put it in space, which is very cold. Okay, now it's not necessarily going to just freeze into ice in space it can actually be in a liquid form as well. Huh. And, uh, you know, we've got um, uh, measurements on, uh, um, you know, suffice to say, there's a lot of water in space, more than than people think. There's kind of two ways to demonstrate that the earth is a water earth. One of them is like we've been talking about, explaining how lava can be made locally. And, uh, well, there's a lot of ways, actually. But another one is looking at other moons in the solar system, other planets, and looking at how much water, you know, NASA admits. There's these, you know, 100-mile-deep ocean on this a moon that's smaller than our moon and our ocean's only two and a half miles deep. Um, we've got tons of water on Mars. It's ice water, of course, but um, those are 
those are really interesting too. Hmm. Um, yeah. So as far as like earth being created, um, I also think that, um, Noah's Ark is a cool analogy of how maybe life got to this earth, how Noah's ship, you know, it, uh, carries the the life to start the new world right right and you know some kind of some kind of transportation happened i don't know how but somehow we got the the seeds here we got the people here we got the animals here and perhaps we even brought seed crystals you might know what a seed crystal is it's a small crystal that you put in a super saturated solution and when it's in there the um uh the the then liquid stuff that's in that supersaturated solution will attach to the seed crystal and grow. So that could be, you know, throw some of those bad boys in there and, and maybe that's how we're starting to get some uh some land masses forming in the earth in the beginning. Okay. It's just one possibility. Some people also talk about, you know, uh accumulation of, of debris, uh into a water body if you have the problem with normal accretion theory is it's like throwing two rocks at each other and expecting them to join right so that that's a really wacky theory um basically what the more you get into this the more astounding it is to find out how wrong so many of our theories are in modern science and it's half depressing and half exciting the depressing is I've been lied to my whole life. Or in other words, at least we're complete idiots. The other half, the exciting part is, you know, the new true way makes so much more sense. It's so much easier to understand. It, it is inherently theistic. It's inherently, you know, religious. So let me ask you this. Do you think it was a case of you were really lied to? Or do you think that this was just a narr you know, a narrative and a theory that that people glommed onto that was just perpetuated? Definitely the the teachers and the you know, I think most people are are just duped. But right. I definitely believe that you know, there's there's two supernatural powers in the universe. There's supernatural good and supernatural evil. You know, there's God and there's the devil. And to to perfectly pull this off, this theory that's that's bought into by everyone, and you're you're thought to be a crazy if you don't believe it, these um, anti-god sciences, that had to have supernatural evil involved to to get it believed and to get it taught. Right. Another another important thing is that um, if you have righteous people let's say this with a grain of salt, but if you have a righteous scientist, he's going to be led to ins insights from the Holy ghost, which are true science. If you have a wicked scientist, he's going to be smart, but he's going to be feeding off the wrong source of information. And you look at the life of Darwin and some of these guys and, and they, you know, um, you know, Okay, not, so not let, let, let me push on that just for a second here, Nate, because we know that some early LDS apostles were very much in favor of evolution, Talmadge being one of them. Oh, yeah, Talmadge would so. 
hiring senior wasn't impossible, but um, yeah. So that's why I said with a grain of salt, because there's obviously righteous people who, you know, it's like so entrenched. It's kind of like, you know, you think of the children growing up at the time just before the flood happened, when all that sodomy was going on, when all that, you know, godlessness was going on. It's like, how much of a chance did those children have to get it right? You know? Right. So then God has to come in and hit the reset button because nobody has a chance anymore. And I think we're almost to that point where we need to hit the reset button again. I mean, God does. And he's promised that he will, not by a flood, but by a fire. Um, because you have sincere people now who are, you know, the the brainwashing, the indoctrination that's happened, you know, the, the corrupting of the sciences, it's happened so thoroughly that it's pretty rare that you'll, you know, you know, cutting edge true science that's really rare and you know you try to get it published in an academic journal and it's a vertical wall you know if if what you want published is not mainstream it's you know not going to happen right so, um let me see if we can talk about a few more things um let's go uh Hmm. there's uh yeah there's like an epic amount of of things we could talk about on you know first off proving that it's a water earth second off proving a flood maybe i'll i'll jump over to some more i'll just say um come back and visit again later the you know get the book or I, I have some PowerPoints up online as well, richardsonstudies.com, that breaks down some of this. Um, three or four PowerPoints uh, that you can go start to get familiar with some of the concepts. Um, so let's assume that we've demonstrated that we have a water-based earth. Um, I, I guess another proof is the... Um, that 90% of the rocks are quartz based. And if earth started out as a melt, you, um, you wouldn't have quartz. You would have glass. So how do we make glass? It's, you superheat sand and, in, in, in that, right? Yeah. You got to melt it. <clears throat> um, but how do you make quartz? So natural quartz rocks, you can't superheat them or they lose a lot of their inherent properties like the piezoelectric properties where they'll generate an electrical charge if they're compressed. Um, so there's also the crystalline structure that exists in quartz that doesn't exist in glass. Um, that's one of the many um, proofs that the earth didn't start out as a melt. There's, you know, then you got to get into explaining how there's not an iron core and if there's not an iron core, what, where do we get our magnetic field around the earth? These are all very important questions that have answers, but we don't have time to get into them. I want to do a little more flood talking. Yeah, I do too. I got some questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you've got these uh, um, projections that NASA has based on how much um how much water is on some of these other moons and such that 
uh, gives us a lot more water to work with. Um, we've got major, remember how we talked about hydro fountains? Right. Well, this is Enceladus. This is a picture that we were able to get where it exploded this um, cannon of water that was, you know, like as big as the as the thing itself. In other words, this thing was full of water and not so much Whoa. anymore because there it went. So when we're talking about hydro fountains, we've never seen flood scale hydro fountains because we haven't had a major flood in 4,500 years, but we are seeing similar things happening on other worlds, other moons and such. So we're, we're seeing, we're seeing this theory that, that you have this idea that, that we sit on a water planet being played out on, on moons and other planets within our solar system. And somehow we think that our planet is, absolutely unique and completely different than every other planet out there is that kind of the the drive absolutely yeah when you look at the other planets and moons you it almost looks like they're trying to make our earth the exception to the rule yeah mm. and, and i think it's important to note that evolution does kind of the same thing too right look most everything kind of starts out good or starts out kind of perfect and then it deteriorates with time, right? Evolution seems to kick that in reverse. Yeah. Um, let's see here. There's a lot of water and rocks, 30% in opal. Um, we have rocks that are have water trapped inside them, called in hydros, just more evidence of, of a watery environment for their formation. Yeah, Russ told me a lot about that. That that was super fascinating. Um, let me get to let me fast track a little bit to get to some more flood stuff. Um, so you asked where are these hydro fountains? And part of the answer is a lot of the things that we think are impact craters are actually hydro fountains. Um so what I mean by that is a lot of these supposed impact craters, instead of being an asteroid hitting the Earth or the moon or whatever, they are actually like little geysers, little implosions where you've got tectonic activity happening. And, you know, like, let's look right here. This is on the moon. It's called a double bullseye double crater. Now, what are the odds of two asteroids hitting the exact same spot? It's got to be at least as close as as the same percentage as like lightning hitting the same place twice, right? Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, these double craters are not an uncommon thing. So here's a double crater all over the place. Um, this one's uh, Ganymede right here. It's not a double impact. You know, it's not God playing darts. It's uh, it's it's kind of like two vol a volcano going off twice. Now, how hard is that to believe? You know? Right. One geyser erupting twice. Well, Old Faithful does it every yeah. every hour or something. Or something yeah. Um, let's see here. That's important. But uh, this is um, a series of supposed impact craters, but they are along a fault line. And hmm. it's 
pretty compelling evidence that this is tectonic related, not impact related. So um, that's why they're all along that fault line. And at the flood, it was the tectonic party of all time. Well, those dude, places. and the other thing, just looking at the picture of the one there that shows where all those impacts were that stretch between Illinois, Missouri, and Kansas, that's mm -hmm. oddly close to Adamon Diamond in that area. Yeah, that sure is. Uh, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of uh, evidence you can get into to point to how these are not impact but they are in fact uh more watery implosions right um let's see here the, well, and, the... and the the other thing i've thought nate and and maybe you can help me out on this is that if it is crater impacts right if if those are crater marks where did the where did the meteorite go? Yeah, that's a big problem with the, and a right. lot of these meteorites people find that are like, Hey, I found a rock from outer space. Like amazing. You know, hate to break it to them, but a lot of those were actually just shot out from underground. Right. Um, yeah. And that's the Arizona hydro crater is this big famous one that they try to use to date the age of the earth. But yeah, there's, um, there's no impact glass because you would have had, so it wasn't a high speed impact and it wasn't a low speed impact because there was no fragments. Um, there's just problem after problem. Um, and uh, you can demonstrate these as being hydro craters. Yeah. And, and I always expect, I always thought, okay, if, if something that large struck the earth, right? So obviously if it's leaving a crater, that's not an air burst it's it's actually making contact with the soil we should see like you were saying the glass but we should also see remnants of that that meteorite and you just don't ever see you know like this you know in inside the arizona hydro you know in that in that arizona crater like a a a, a mound there that would represent you know hey the, there's the there's the meteor that, that struck. Yeah, that's a pretty big problem. And they'll do all kinds of creative stuff to get around it. And you can even look at, you know, if you set off an underground bomb versus a, a, a rocket that strikes a target. Right. It'll, it'll show you again, you know, all the patterns that you need to know to be able to differentiate between an underground situation and an overground. And so the problem is, there's some theories that should have died a long time ago, but they're sticking around. And that's when I turn and say, it's got to be <laughs> supernatural evil because some of these, some of these things should have died a long time ago and they're, they're sticking around. Gotcha. Um, so this is something that we referred to earlier. This is some more examples of some, some of those hydro fountain possibilities. So no taste. Yeah. Um, deep cylindrical pits and um, the like. Um, yeah. So um, the um, when the continents buckle at the beginning of the flood event, um, water from beneath 
uh, exits. Um, and that's another thing is the main thing that comes out of a volcano is not lava. It's actually water vapor. Um, the Mount St. Helens eruption, there was no lava. Um, but there was an epic amount of, of mud because of all the water coming out. It wasn't just um, from the snow on the top of the mountain. That was what they tried to say, but it's not nearly enough. Um, mm. Let me see here. So some more important flood points are that you've got mountains with marine fossils. Mount Timpanogos, the Alps, the Everest, the Himalayas. Um, and we have our satellites. So our satellites are telling us that mountains move a little bit you know, as do right. the continents, they move a little bit horizontally yep. each year, but our satellites are saying there's no vertical movement. And when an evolutionist looks at these marine fossils up on, you know, miles high mountains, even Everest, the ridge of, you know, of these mountaintops, they'll say, well, I guess that mountain came up really slowly and it used to be on the ground level and it really slowly came up, and there's some leftover fossils up there. Now, there's multiple problems with that. Obviously, one of them would be um, erosion would have wiped out a lot of those fossils a long time ago if it was that long. Another is, based on our satellite readings, mountains aren't coming up. So there's two things with mountains. One is there was mount there was mountains in the beginning of the creation. I know some people will disagree with that, but from what we can tell, there was. And there's mountains without fossils in them, um, the granite mountains and such. Gra granite rock is basically creation rock. Okay. Um, and uh, so these mountains, all the mountains that you see, they were either um, lifted, they could have been lifted up in the flood or created in the flood from the plate interactions but we don't need to say that it was a shallow flood and we can't say that it was a shallow flood because we know the recipe for fossils requires a certain amount of water pressure um now there's some minor exceptions you'll hear of of the odd story of you know uh, of a fossil being formed um but the vast majority and the mass extinctions and all of this for all those fossils to be made, you had to have the um, the depths of waters that we've been talking about. Right. Um, we also see on Mars, the surface of Mars, there's these rounded pebbles and cobbles and these vast flat plains. And so the researchers say, yeah, this was a floodplain, massive flooding over here, because that's how these kind of rocks are made and these flat plains as well. Um, also, Flat plains are another evidence that the sediments, instead of just crust banging against each other, making mountains all over the place, we have massive, totally, totally flat plains. And those flat plains are another evidence that um, a lot of the sediment was put down in a watery situation where the water flattened everything out. Gotcha. So anyway, they're recognizing this mega flood on Mars, but they're not willing to uh, point to this on Earth. One important Part of that is that on Earth, we have um, a atmosphere that makes a lot of vegetation 
and a lot more wind and erosion. So it does kind of cover up the fact that there was the flood. It's not quite as obvious as this Mars uh, massive floodplain. You've got some similar things um, where scientists are acknowledging that things like the English Channel were carved out by a fast, powerful, massive flood that was 100 times greater than the Mississippi River, probably much larger, um, that there was a catastrophic erosion. These are recent discoveries because of higher resolution sonar data, previously unavailable, to make the 3D high quality images. You've got places like um, the Scoblands, uh, Washington. You've the Washington got Scablands. Yeah. You've yeah got that's, that's fascinating. I did a survey up there once, and I can tell you just from being there, and if you just look at it, it looks like it was absolutely bombarded by fast, violent moving water. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and you've got a lot of the, the time when you've got the uh, mountain folding, where a lot of the layers are, are folded and on an angle and everything, not just flat layers, but all folded. That uh, is from when the, you know, that a lot of those mountains were pushed around um, during the flood time and bended, it wasn't slow creeping up to that. Right. Um, so you've got all kinds of place. They also acknowledge that um, over just the American continent that they used to have hundreds of feet higher of, um, was it? I think it was hundreds of miles. I don't know if I put the slide in here. Oh yeah, here it is. Uh, several hundred, the sea level was several hundred feet higher than today. And if it was that much higher in America, it would have um, likely been everywhere else too. Um, so you've got all over the world, they're admitting flooding, flooding, flooding. Um, for dinosaurs, they're admitting that it was a flash flood. It was um, a sweeping abnormal flood. And um, one really big evidence for um, the dinosaurs dying at the flood is that... Um, so first off, people don't think that the dinosaurs lived with humans, and they think they were really, really long time ago. But if the Earth itself is only, you know, back to Adam is 6,000 years, and around then, you know, uh, maybe 7,000 years of creation, if we apply what Peter says about one day being 1,000 years. So I think a 7,000 years creation is a really valid theory, and that's um, Universal Model talks about that too. But uh, these these dinosaur bones, um, there's lots of oddities that point to massive flooding. Um, you've got deposits of dinosaurs being, you know, without their young, they're running away. The young didn't make it as far as they did. You've got um, bones just snapped in half, but they're not like gnawed on by scavengers. They're just uh, this big sweeping massive flood graves where we've got just thousands of thousands of animals. Um, so the scientists are admitting that comet theories on the way out, flood theories on the way in when it comes to dinosaurs, when it comes to the fossil record, you basically, you know, they'll have their geologic column and say the, you know, the Cambrian and all these different uh, times of, of the deep time of the earth. But, they will admit that there's a time when there's hardly any fossils and then boom, 
there's just a chuck ton of fossils. And that would be the flood time, the Cambrian explosion, the um, the great dying is what they call it. And um, it uh, it's like there was no fossils, virtually nothing, and then boom, everything, all the uh, large animals, all this just showed up. And that's a big problem for them is how is there that gap? It's not a slow evolution. It's a big gap. So I, I agree with you 100%. I have a, a good friend who um, is, I'm not going to name him and I'm not going to name the university he's at. I will say that it's in the Intermountain West, but he's a geologist. And uh, I was talking to him just a couple months ago and he was commenting that, that right now there, this idea of a cataclysmic flood is gaining some traction, he said. But the the problems that they're encountering right now is that you have a certain branch that just won't let the old narrative die, no matter how much um, evidence there is to to the contrary to support this this uh, cataclysmic flood idea. The my 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 question for you on on this is. How do you explain the the dates they come up with then with like carbon dating and that sort of stuff, right? Because that I find that so much of their arguments for this this old earth kind of um, paradigm rests on the science of carbon dating. Can you speak to the veracity of that at all? So there's there's some really big problems there. Um... And it's part of it's tied to, you know, when you carbon date something, it's saying how long ago was this um, created? Um, when they do that with a rock, it's how long ago since it was formed from a melt, which they were never formed from a melt. So that that shuts down the whole branch of of uh, of that. But but yeah, I mean, carbon dating. There's uh, there's a chapter on this in the book and all that. But it, there's a lot, there's an army of creation scientists. You know, Dean has a lot of really amazing stuff. But um, the problems with carbon dating, you can bash on carbon dating fairly easily um, from, you know, there's all kinds of texts that have been written about all the problems with that. You'll, um, you'll send in a sample of the same thing in two different bags a month apart from each other, and you'll get totally different dates. Um, so there is just these vast inaccuracies like, uh, you know, and, and they'll give you this quote unquote absolute date, but it's, this was somewhere ranging from 10,000 to 5 million years. And it's not very absolute. No. Um, but, uh, this is another place where, where the water planet earth is so important that a lot of creation scientists are missing on. Um, the hydro planet model is not really taught anymore um, because we've we've so far bought into that as being a, a reality, which, you know, James Hutton came up with it 200 years ago. Um, so it's, it's a fairly new thing, but it's so ingrained now. But if you don't have the melt in the beginning, you can't have the radiometric dating at all. Even if you have a precise instrument, it's on a flawed premise that everything came from melt. And that you're dating back to see how long ago that melt was. Um, but uh, yeah, and 
when it comes to like human civilization, we can take, you know, cave drawings and date them to say, okay, this was a 50,000 year old drawing. However, the only written records, you can only go back to 4,000 BC. Um, as far as like records where people actually wrote down and indicated dates and all that, you got 4,000 BC, nothing, nothing past that. So we can speculate and we can do, you know, argon dating, carbon dating. We can do all kinds of dating techniques and come up with all kinds of different answers. Um, but that's one uh, strong thing that there's, there's no uh, written records past 4,000 BC, but it's, it's not in this presentation, but later in, in volume two is where it talks a lot about that of universal model talks about all the different ways that people have tried to date the earth, like 25 different methods, you know, radiocarbon being just one of those and how they all just come up with these extremely different dates. And you might notice that the earth keeps getting older, you know, right. like really fast getting older. And it's the same thing with like big bang. Um, they used to say big bang was a, a small amount, you know, it was like hundred square miles of mass imploded and exploded and blah, blah, blah. No, it was actually like, you know, a, a square mile of mass. No, it was a, they get smarter, smarter. And now they're like, Oh, it was nothing. Nothing exploded. Um, anyway, but yeah, that's a, that's kind of a, the carbon dating is kind of a whole nother big old topic. And the only reason I bring that up is because that's often a, a, uh, a, a, arrow in their quiver that they will use to kind of push back against this idea of a, of a global flood, right? Is they'll say, well, we have, we have all this carbon dating that, that tells us that it's much older than that. But as I looked at it, it doesn't look like it's reliable. It doesn't look like it's really repeatable, like you were saying, even from the same sample. And so when you get that kind of error that's built in to the model, that leaves a lot of room for a lot of speculation. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of like the, the Bible flood is a pinpoint that we can use. And then we can build off of that because, you know, it was 4,500 years ago. That's when this worldwide flood happened. And that's when every creature died. And, right. you know, um, human population got a reset. Well, um, I if I'm not mistaken, even even those same scientists will admit that about 4,500 years ago, there was a bottleneck in human population. Yeah, yeah, that's that would be the Cambrian explode, the Cambrian, you know, mass extinction. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's like okay, well, the Cambrian, no, it wasn't X hundred million years. It wasn't six hundred million years ago. It was actually, you know. 4,000 years ago and right. that really that really does a number on the age of the earth um so uh another important thing with with uh flood geology is looking at some small scale things that you can translate into bigger scale so this is a sewer pipe and um with an earthquake in japan you can um it's come up and this crust around it has collapsed but it's kind of stayed intact because it's made of that harder concrete right. and you can um 
see this is what happens on a really big scale with a lot of our things like we we're talking about monument valley and a lot of those just mount uh you know um places where something just sticks up you could have entire mountain ranges that uh were hydro fountains and they solidified and the surrounding sediment eroded because it wasn't as hard and left over today you've got this mountain range so right. it's hard to comprehend the vast the mega scale of the water that came out at the flood and of what it made um here's you know hydro uh, sand this is a bunch of sand spewing out when you look at the Colorado Plateau, it's this big area of a different color than the rest of the United States. And those sands were all spewed out during the flood. Um, and you've got these hard formations, you know, that are um, leftover hardened pipes from it. But the Grand Canyon itself, like we were talking about earlier, it's this layer after layer after layer of, of sediment that was deposited in a short amount of time because there's no organic layers between them and no fossil evidences of plant and animal life between them. So we know they were laid down in a short amount of time. The flood would be the ideal time to where those sediments are getting shot out. And then the, the Grand Canyon itself, an earthquake, you know, open it right up for us. And there's some other theories, but I, you know, the strongest one is the earthquake theory. Um, so let me see here. Uh, talked about that. Um, a bunch of these pipes um, are leftovers, you know, Monument Valley, even these big mountains in the background, those could be massive hydro fountains. Um, we talked about how the you know the Grand Canyon is just peppered with uh, seismic activity. The the canyon itself is one big um, fault line. Um, here you've got the rim differences and twelve hundred feet height, obvious evidence of an earthquake. Um, so th this is evidence of two things: one, that the Grand Canyon is young, and two, which makes the Earth young. And two, that these sediments, if they're deposited quickly, what is the event in the history of the earth that deposited those quickly? And um, I guess I guess you could have some of this at creation as well. But um, flood, flood and creation are the two times where you've got the all this going on. Um, well, and, and just from scripture, I tend to think that things like the Grand Canyon and that sort of thing are products of the flood. And, and the reason for that is, is that when you hear about the, you know, in, in Revelation and, and stuff like that, where, you know, the earth is, is taking on more of its uh, paradisical glory, it talks about the mountains being made low and the valleys being raised up and things being smooth. Which just lends me to, okay, if this is a rest, you know, if this is the restoration of the earth, so to speak, the celestialization of the earth, it's probably going back to its its former and uh, perfected state, right? Yeah, I guess another time that there could have been some major changes is the fall of Adam. You know, yep. maybe there's 
some major seismic activity that created mountains at that time too. Yep. Um, but as far as like a, a smooth earth, I'm not sure. I mean, we've got mountains low and valleys up. It's like some places going down and other places going up, but I don't know on that. Um, uh, yeah. Um, this is the Waimea Canyon in Hawaii, and it's another example of a um, seismic earthquake creating this scenario, which gives us evidence for the United States one being made the same way. Right. Um, this is this is pretty important right here. This is Lake Powell. When we put in the water for Lake Powell, it we didn't put it all the way, you know, up here. We put it down here. But in the history of Lake Powell, obviously there was water that came through and pummeled this pretty hard at one point because it's got this smoothed area here. Now the top area is a rough area. Um, this would mean exposure during the uh, a quaking time and where other surrounding sediment gets eroded. So this was covered in the flood, but this top part was exposed by a quake. And at some point, water came in and smoothed this out. Um, part of the reason this is important is because the Grand Canyon, does it look like the top part or the bottom part? The top part's more more rigid right. and the bottom part's more smooth. Right. So the Grand Canyon probably looks more like the top part, um, mm -hmm. meaning that the Grand Canyon wasn't carved by water. If the Grand Canyon was carved by water, the walls would look more like this smooth area. Right. Um, yeah, so some more of these, um, fountains, I think, yeah, some more I'm, of these. I'm fascinated by these water pipes, as you call them. Yeah. <clears throat> Is there anything other than their shape that you could point to and say, oh, that's what that was. That was a, that was a hydro fountain. Um, there's a couple things. One is the different color. They're right. I remember that. Than the surrounding area. Another is what is in the surrounding area. Is the surrounding area, you know, why is it this thing? And then every, you know, the surrounding area is totally different. Right. So um, that points to uh, this being a very different formation from underground, that there was some underground activity, um, which eventually had, you've got this solidified and the surrounding stuff being eroded away. So those are a couple points. Um, I it goes into a lot more detail in the text on like the composition of these versus the composition of surrounding layers. Um, and there's there's lots of you know because you could say was it just lava, you know, not water, but there's plenty of evidences of um, of water passages and mud and sand, not just lava. And you know you've got a stark, um, stark contrast. I think it's. Oh, here's a really important point. This is a mud fountain. So mud fountains like these are at the bottom of the ocean worldwide. Mm -hmm. Okay. So these are basically they're volcanoes underwater, which just spit out a bunch of mud. And uh, those are another um, big source for. Okay. That um, Mount St. Helens itself you could call a mud fountain because that's the main thing that came out of it. 
Um, yeah. Um, so this is uh, you could you could figure out the um, the date of this the the Badlands mud fountain. Um, it erodes this whole area about an inch per year, but um, if th then they, at the same time they turn around and say it's five million years old, but <laughs> it would be seventy nine miles tall five million years ago if that was the case. Which is just an astronomically big number that you know the mountains are five miles tall at most, and so seventy miles tall is just ridiculous, right? Um, but based on what erosion we can see, um, this uh, has been eroding down about three hundred feet, and so if you calculate three hundred feet at an inch per year, that's about four thousand years ago. In other words, this was all deposited four thousand thereabouts years ago and it's been going down by erosion since then right which matches up with our flood time as well yeah um this is artist palette it's this very colorful formation you see stuff like this this uh this green and purple um it didn't erode from anywhere there's no rivers that carried sediment here this had to have come from underneath the ground um, and again, different colorings by the microbes under the earth. Um, there's some similar things. Uh, we talked about some of these um, dikes. Now, here's a big hitter for them being shooting out water, not just um, lava right. traveling through. It's because there's rounded pebbles and smooth cobbles like fluvial gravel. Okay that are flowing through these. There's some other ones in the book that I didn't put in here, but where there's skipper rocks and they're lined. These dikes are lined with these skipper rocks and it's evidence that there was water smoothing them out coming through there. So that's yeah. a pretty important thing. Um, let's see. Lava flow wouldn't have this, you know, if this was lava, this dike was made by lava now, there are some dikes made by lava, but this clean cut and all this, your um, your lava is looking a lot different. Right. Um, this is kind of cool. These see all these black boulders on this hill right here. They're very different than the surroundings uh, stuff. How did they get here without mixing with the other rocks? Um, you'd say, well, maybe they rolled on in on a glacier, but it's this unique little deposit right here and there's not like a big old trail of right. where they would have come from these came from under the earth they were shot out from under the earth um they are unrounded so that's another evidence that they didn't travel here from afar they would have been more rounded if they did um so you've got these uh scenarios where you've got uh all all over the world you've got these fountains where Rocks are coming out, sand's coming out, and uh, epic amounts of water. Now, one of the reasons that I'm saying epic amounts of water come out of these pipes is what's coming out of the volcanoes. It's epic amounts of water vapor. But, again, in this discussion that we've had tonight, we've not, like, put all the nails in the coffin for the water earth. But when you have the water earth established, it's easy to see that when you do have a deep opening there a lot of the time what's going to be coming out of it is water because there's so dang much water 
that, you know, the continents, we're all sitting on water. Um, you know, we dig wells and that's a little bit of an idea, but, but it's a lot more extensive than just that. Um, another thing you can say is the uh, sediment size table. You've got missing pebble sizes, meaning that a lot of these um, rocks were formed in the flood. They weren't just eroded because if they were all, if all of our sands, a lot of the sands are flood sands. Because if the sands were all just erosion, you'd have a, a perfect continuum of of gradient size. But right. you're missing some pretty decent, you know, sizes of sand, which means these are these are created sands, not um uh in and there's a lot that goes into that, but we can't just say they were all erosion. Okay. Um let's see here. Uh hydrothermal activity. Hydrothermal. Um, this is some more of those distinct off-colored areas, mystique sand, uh, mesquite sand dunes, Death Valley sand, clay. You look at it from the satellites, this white patch of in the middle of nowhere. It didn't erode from a white mountain, you know. It didn't right. get brought in by a river. This is from underground. Um, and um, evidencing that there's so much stuff that comes up from underground some more discolored is an important one I wanted to show to you. Um, a, another element of it is that what holds these together is quartz. Quartz is the most common cement in sandstones. Something that's established uh, in the, in the text is that quartz doesn't come from a melt. This sandstone right. rock here wouldn't be held together. If it, this isn't a, you know, a supposed igneous rock. Um, this is uh, cemented together by quartz. And if you melt quartz, first off, how did that even get there if the earth is from a, a melt instead of a right. water-based creation? So all over the place, you've got these formations that are held together by quartz cement that uh, require a watery creation. And again, um, you're, you're able to make that in that perfect recipe that the floods provides. Um, these arches, why isn't there debris, you know, national, uh, the, yeah. these arches, where's all the debris? So these were uh, more soft material um, or even the fully hardened rock, but water comes through, it jets through here and it carries the debris away with the jet of water. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No debris. Um, if these were forming slowly over time, you know, we have seen a few arches crumble. Uh, 1991, 2008, these, these arches fell. And yeah, there are debris right there. But where's all the debris for all these others? These weren't forming slowly over time. These were washed right through in the flood. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, it's the topsoil we talked about earlier. Um, how worldwide there's this layer of organic soil. Um, which the amount of, you know, it would take, uh, not less than 400 years, uh, to do, what was it like and a single inch of topsoil. And then you do the calculations, um, and you've got, you know, this, this, uh, um, nine inches or so, um, let's see, what is it? 500 years 
anyway, sorry, it's almost in the brush from that, but it points us right back to flood time as well as before that. Um, you get a few more. This is a alluvial fan. This is a mega alluvial fan. We've never seen an alluvial fan this big being made. We've seen little washouts, you know, like by a little creek, you'll see this little area where it washes out and it'll put the the little sort of a fan shape. But the amount of water that must have been flowing through here to make this mega alluvial fan is is just beyond comprehension to us, really, because we've never seen it happen because we weren't right. around when, when the flood waters happened. <clears throat> In Mount St. Helens, you've got this little rock flow. But this isn't an alluvial fan flow. This wasn't as nearly as much water. Mount St. Helens was uh, um, not nearly as much water as what happened. Um, these are some more of these very possible hydro fountains, Agatha Peak. You can see this big old opening in the top right here. Um, this big old open pipe right here. Um, wow. So these are some pretty cool ones. Um, yeah. How was this Agatha covered by sediment that he wrote it away, leaving only the minette mineral behind? There's a lot. This is like the Reader's Digest, definitely version. Um, liquefaction, you know, where the water under the surface. Uh, um, when you have an earthquake, you can have liquefaction, major incidents. Um, New, New Madrid fault earthquakes. Um the survivors said there was water and sand spouting up through fissures or cracks to the earth's surface. <laughs> um, this How long ago was that? How long was the New Madrid earthquake? Um, I, I'm trying to remember, but I don't. But it was, you know, obviously. Okay, no, no sweat. It was, I was just curious. Yeah. Um, this one in India was in 2001. The, a large earthquake initiated liquefaction, triggering hydro fountains that spouted sand over an area greater than 15,000 kilometers. Or that's about 10,000 square miles. Now that one's impressive and it's yeah. impressive because it's so recent. Yeah. Right. I, if something's thousands of years old, you could say, okay, well maybe the inhabitants, you know, things got passed down wrong, but 2001 is, is very, very recent. And so that should carry a lot of weight in, in, in kind of forming your opinion, I would think. Yeah, these are some recent events that open the door to how we could have colossal scale things like this happening. Because when you've got basically the bigger the earthquake, the bigger the liquefaction and the bigger the hydro fountains are going to be triggered, you know, the more friction that's going to be, uh, you know, liquefying and rock and sending up stuff. This is in... Um, this is the uh, Kobe incident from 1996. Uh, in this incident, there was no active volcano and heat flow studies revealed no significant lateral changes in the temperature before the earthquake. Therefore, we suggest that the anomaly, this is the Journal of Science is saying this. We suggest that the anomaly, the Kobe hypocenter is not related to a magma reservoir, but rather to the presence of fluids in the crust. Oh, that's a good one. Um, this is the Chai Chai, if I'm saying that right, earthquake 1999. Um, people said there were huge boulders being flung into the air. This is all without volcanic eruption. This was Hydro Rock Fountain. Hmm. Um, 
So again, um, these really cool structures in nature that we kind of scratch our heads like how in blazes did that happen? A lot of it can be unlocked with this understanding of, of these solidified pipes and the surrounding areas not being as uh, solid because they weren't at, as directly encountered by the pressure water right. uh, unique for that formation. And then so some uh, surrounding area going down and then some of the pipe itself being pushed up at the after it hardens. Um, yeah, this is another sand fountain. So a lot of this going on. I think I'll skip that. The big planes. Why are all these big planes happening? The flat planes going on without end is evidence that there was a lot of water smoothing everything out right here. Just raking it all smooth there. And so scientists, when they see these massive planes, are like, why? Why do we have planes at all? Uh, these massive planes. Um, there's a lot of these uh, pillow, these uh, columnar formations that uh, we are finding out they are with watery formation. Um, lava doesn't cool to form these basalt columns. Let me show you a couple examples here. These uh, Devil's Tower, these columns here, um, the square or cylindrical shapes, that is big evidence that this was uh, formed by water in a watery environment. The Devil's Tower is near in the middle of a collapsed dome. In other words, this is the middle of a basically a volcano, but it's not a volcano because magma doesn't create this kind of stuff. It doesn't create this shape of column. And so this was a water watery creation because we're finding over and over, like this other thing here, this was uh, in Hawaii, the Puna Ridge, um, where underwater basalt columns form. And scientists are beginning to recognize the direct evidence of subaqueous column formation, which shows the importance of water and high pressure. So again, when you see this kind of thing, think water and high pressure. Um, this was near three faults. So again, the earthquake triggering. This is the Devil's Post pile. This is Paul Bunyan's wood pile. More of these cylind. Uh, um, now, particularly these. Uh, um, this sort of shape, the Devil, the uh, Giants Causeway, Ireland. They got these uh, columnar shapes here from the watery creation, showing that these aren't just. We can't just say that all these dikes, all these columns are made out of magma, magma, magma. There's just a billion reasons why we can't say that. Because this typical feature is a, is a subaqueous feature. That's how it forms. And we've demonstrated it. And, you know, uh, there's, um, you know, the smooth, the smooth skipper rocks, the rounded pebbles that are all in through them being eroded down by water. So, yeah, there's a lot of different emphasis that these were not just all lava pipes and lava created. They like to bring lava for everything. And it's just kind of backwards. Gotcha. So I think you've done a real good job in explaining the science of how the the flood itself could happen. If you're open to it, I would like to just kind of paraphrase Noah's the 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 Noah's Ark story here. And then I'll, I want to ask some questions based off of that. Are you good with that? That's great. So God comes to Noah and says, look, mankind's gone off the rails. I'm going to hit the reset button, but I'm going to spare you and your family. So Noah builds the ark and it has very specific dimensions and whatnot. Eventually 
you know, of course, everyone mocks Noah, laughs at him. And eventually the 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 rains and those those fountains, they burst and they come forward just like you explained here. You did a real good job in that. Raises the ark. Noah and his family are preserved. Do you have any sort of indication on how Noah was able to keep all of those animals from tearing the ark apart? Um, so a lot of people like to point out that he could have taken baby animals okay. or at least juvenile animals. And that could include some dinosaurs for all we know. <laughs> um, but I mean, I don't know that he would take these vicious animals. I don't know that he took every animal, but, right. uh, but there does seem that like there was some, some big old lizard things walking around that some people had to hunt down in a lot of legends, you know, right. That's a really fascinating uh, topic. But yeah, so, I mean, do, I do we have, I mean, obviously we do know that there are some omnivores that will hibernate. Right. So I, I could see some animals just within their natural cycle. If, if conditions changed, maybe that caused them to go into that kind of state. But is there anything else within nature that we find where animals can kind of enter a catatonic state and be docile? I, I don't know about nature, but I definitely know about the Bible. Like, look at Daniel in the lion's den. Okay. Yeah. God no, that's things. That's that's good. And then when Noah gets off the ark, it's just him and his family, right? I think it says that that the some of the boys had wives. Do we know is is that that has to be the wellspring then again from when humanity springs once again, right? Yeah, as far as I understand, everyone's geology Noah's a common father, you know, to everyone post flood. Let me ask you this question: Do we find any remnants of? that Adamic civilization, right? That that time when when Adam and Seth and Noah and Methuselah were all on the earth. In other words, do we have evidence of pre-flood civilization? Yeah. The answer is yes. And there's some stuff about it. Um, the Clovis people, there's a whole chapter on it in Universal Model 2. There's some good stuff there. So who were the Clovis people? Explain so, that a little bit. I'm going to be honest. That's a, that's something that I'm still reading. This is a really okay. big book. <laughs> so I'm not the perfect savvy, but yeah, I just know that there's some stuff in there. Um, like on these pre-flood civilization a little bit. And uh, I'm pretty sure he, he has them in um, America. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the first time Clovis points are discovered are in Clovis, New Mexico, but they found yeah. them all the way on the Delmarva Peninsula out there in Maryland and, and Delaware and Virginia. So they, it was it was expansive, definitely. Yeah, that's an exciting topic. And it can, you know, Latter-day Saint theology talks about, you know, the Garden of Eden in Missouri, um, something to that effect. And, you know, uh there's also um he he does uh yeah so it'll it'll all come together at some point you know that's the whole right. whole goal with with 
you know, the true purpose of education and nature, you know, about education, about nature is it all points us back to theology, you know, to Christianity, to the fullness of the gospel. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. No, I'm not more savvy on that. Than no, no, you're good. You're good. This has been awesome. Yeah. So let me ask you this. What has studying this done for your testimony? It has been quite the adventure. I, um, let me say at the, before I got into any of this research, I hoped that evolution, evolution wasn't true because that would be a real party pooper on faith. And I would have to do some real big tricks to, to be happy with faith and evolution. And, you know, I had a lot of people talking to me that were like, just pulling on me, pulling on me. Come on, man. Like, and, you know, when are you going to get it? That evolution is, is how God does, does things. And I just never felt good about that. And it was deeply disturbing to me. And what, you know, you don't hear about creation science. I didn't know creation science existed in any way, shape or form until multiple years into my, you know, college career and all that. Um, but particularly the universal model, like my, one of my people who, uh, Kent Hovind, mm -hmm. he is a creation science Protestant lecturer who is just really, um, amazing. Uh, there's some problems with, with some creation science ideas, namely that they think the whole creation happened of the universe happened at the same time, which I think doesn't have to be that way. And our theology supports, you know, Hey, God's going to go create this. This is awesome. Okay. Hey, let's go create this. Hey, that's cool too. And, you know, but, uh, but yeah, Kent Hovind, he was a really big influence on me to start me in the right direction, but universal model in particular, I owe so much to that um, research because it's really made it a lot more concrete for me. And it's uh, very, made it very tangible, you know, it's just, I am a lot more at peace in my soul with, with this, uh, this kind of research has really helped me go a long way. And let me say that when you have faith, you don't, you know, you don't require, like you were saying earlier, as soon as I started to hear that there was an inkling of hope that, oh, the flood is real. Oh, we, we aren't descended from monkeys. Man, I grabbed onto that instantly. That's true. You know? And I ran with it and I was blessed to kind of haphazardly find universal model eventually all this, but our, you know, even if we get a tiny bit of evidence, you know, um, I mean, it's hard because you get religious people telling you that these crazy ideas, it's like, gosh, everybody else believes these things. Maybe I'm, I'm like a dork for not believing these things, but, but yeah, I, I just, I'm at peace with, with all this. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and that's what I guess we, we should, that's what I, I think we should take away from this, right? Is that you shouldn't be basing your testimony around scientific evidence, right? We're talking about spiritual things. However, I think once you're rock solid in that testimony, I think all sorts of things come out of the woodwork to bear testimony to what was revealed in scripture and what, and, and those stories weren't just stories. Those were events that actually happened. Um, 
one of the things I found, find absolutely fascinating about the flood story is that it is all over the world, right? So many cultures. This was a cataclysm that left scars on all sorts of different societies, right? Every society has their flood story. And I think it really points back to the idea that, that it, this did happen. And this went down just the way the Old Testament says it did. Yeah, it creates a, a bigger, stronger God. That yeah. is a lot more involved and it makes faith a lot more real. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dude, this was awesome. Uh, I, I, I probably know we didn't cover everything you wanted to cover this time around, but dude, let's do it again. Yeah, I mean, there's always... There's always more, right? But yeah, yeah we, it was a really great opportunity. Yeah, no, I had a great time, man. So uh, anything that you really want to cover now that we didn't cover already? No, I feel like we got a lot of good points made, a lot of good stuff to chew on. Fantastic. Well, dude, let's do this. Let's uh, let's plan on – I'll just reach out to you after a little while, and we'll do this again because I, I love talking to you. Okay. Super appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. All right. Bye, everybody. You're listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast.